you know, part of the impetus for starting this work was to really address some of what the realities are for our rural community colleges. And growing up in rural communities, this work felt really important to me, especially to be able to address this in a way that uh, simultaneously really captures uh, the great barriers that rural communities and rural community colleges face without focusing on a sort of deficit narrative. This is In the Know with ACCT, the voice of community college leaders. I'm Jacob Bray. On this episode of In the Know, ACCT's David Connor, Rachel Rush Marlowe, and Jihang Lee spoke about ACCT's most recent report, Strengthening Rural Community Colleges, Innovation and Opportunities. The report, funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, details the needs and challenges of rural community colleges throughout the United States without focusing on a deficit narrative. For more information on the report, and about rural institutions in general, please visit rural.acct.org. The report is not the end for our rural institution project. Information will continue to be added. This interview was recorded on Zoom, so please excuse a few brief dips in audio quality. I'm David Connor, Director of Strategic Communications for ACCT, and I am happy to be here today with a couple of my colleagues, uh, Senior Vice President Ji Heng Lee, and Senior Program Manager, Rachel Rush Marlowe. Um, and today we're gonna to be talking about a new paper that we have come out with called Strengthening Rural Community Colleges, Innovations and Opportunities. So uh, to begin with, I guess uh, just, I'd like to know, and I'd like you to let everybody listening know, uh, what led ACCT to begin researching the needs of rural community colleges specifically? Uh David, thank you so much for the question, and um, I'm happy to kind of outline why we decided to go this route. Um, one of the things that ACCT does is try to maintain a tight relationship with our membership, uh, and that usually is in the form of attending uh, state association meetings, communicating with our rank and file trustees, and our college presidents. One of the things that has transpired in the last couple of years prior to the initiation of our grant project is that many of our rural and small trust, uh, college trustees uh, really came up to me uh, when I was doing these visits and when Noah would do visits uh, throughout the states and really kind of shine a spotlight on some of the difficulties that our rural community colleges were facing, uh, either in the form of uh, funding uh, for their institutions, uh, for getting additional financial aid for their students, uh, the ability to access uh, faculty and staff to appropriately staff these institutions. So it really was a, um, a really member-driven item uh, that really focused some of our attention on this critical issue. And we're very excited that when we first broached the subject matter with the uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, uh, that they decided ultimately to fund the project. Great. Well, Rachel, actually, I'm going to put you on the spot um, here because we just recently announced this paper and we've had a lot of online activity, people responding strongly to it. Um, if you have it handy, I wonder if you might read or just encapsulate um, a message that you got because I think it really um, gets to the heart of why this is so necessary. Absolutely, David. Well, I think, uh, as Jiheng mentioned, you know, part of the impetus for starting this work was to really address some of what the realities are for our rural community colleges. 
Uh, and growing up in uh, rural communities, this work felt really important to me, especially to be able to address this in a way that uh, simultaneously really captures uh, the, the great barriers that rural communities and rural community colleges face without focusing on a sort of deficit narrative. Um, and like you said, we've, we've received a lot of great feedback on the report um, that, that we did kind of hit that tone. So I'm really happy that we were able to uh, put out a message and, and do research that resonates with people. Uh, we received a, a really nice message from um, someone working at a uh, rural community college in Northern California who shared that he feels that it's, it's really uncommon for the realities of rural communities to be articulated appropriately. Um, and that the communities are really not well understood. Um, and when analysis is conducted, you know, it's not done uh, in the proper way and it kind of mischaracterizes the issues on the ground. Um, and so, so far it seems that the reception has been that our, our work has been able to more accurately capture uh, what it is that our colleges are going through and what they face. Which is great because that, um, as I understand it, that, that was the whole idea of the overall project because the Strengthening Rural Community Colleges project is a little bit beyond the report. The report sort of summarizes the work that's been done over the past 18 months or so. Since we are a national association that represents colleges of all sizes, I, I also was wondering, what do you think um, non-rural colleges can get out of this report? Because I think there's some really valuable information in there, no matter who you are, what type of institution, but um, just in case anyone's listening. Uh, yes, David, I think for us as a membership-based association that has rural, urban, suburban, tribal institutions of members, uh, there are valuable uh, case studies or uh, stories from many of our institutions, such as, for example, I think one of the more poignant stories, especially around student housing, was about one of our institutions, Imperial Valley College in uh, Southern California, and the work that they've been doing to support homeless students. Uh, and this is, while uh, focused on a rural community college, one can take a step back and ascertain this it could be a possible solution for an urban uh, college, a suburban college. Uh, so I think these are all enormous opportunities for institutions to really take a uh, closer look at some of the programs that our institutions are running and see whether or not they'd be a, uh, a proper fit for them. Absolutely. I think uh, in addition to the case studies highlighted the, the three sort of broad challenges that we identified throughout the report um, you know, these aren't necessarily challenges that exclusively face rural community colleges. These are community college challenges overall. Um, you know, we know that as a sector, uh, we're underfunded relative to other sectors of education and we, we face challenges in funding, you know, regardless of geographic location. Um, you know, the issues in rural area just look a little bit different, right? And as the report discusses, uh, costs are higher. Um, so while funding is, is a challenge for urban and suburban institutions as well, there are differences in cost in rural communities. Things are difficult to scale. Um, you know, by nature of being rural, uh, geographically, you might not be located near a lot of taxable districts. Um, I think the, similarly for the other two issues, you know, while broadband uh, connectivity is certainly more pronounced in rural areas, um, that doesn't mean that you know, every other part of the country is well connected. Um, and it's, it's certainly not affordable. Uh, for everyone. Um, and then with, with mental health, the third challenge that we identified, uh, you know, we recognize, of course, that, that mental health issues are not unique to rural communities either. But again, you know, the picture just looks a little bit different. Um, urban and suburban areas might have more access to uh, resources as far as 
psychologists and psychiatrists, um, but that doesn't mean that they're accessible or affordable for students, um, right? In, in rural areas, there just aren't any, um, but just because they're there doesn't mean that our students, you know, are, are able to take advantage of those services. Uh, and similarly, you know, I think um, the stigma around mental health is an issue everywhere, but in rural communities, there's really no anonymity. Um, and so that stigma is, is presented in different ways and is a, a much greater barrier. Um, so I think really the, the challenges that we discuss in the report are things that face all of our community colleges. I think it's really interesting. Um, I mean, obviously, probably most of us think of rural colleges as isolated, geographically isolated and more distant. And <laughs> um, so as I mentioned, you launched this project uh, about, I think about 18 months ago and nobody saw what was gonna happen, but now everybody's isolated or just about everybody. Um, so obviously COVID-19 impacted the research process. Um, if you could talk a little bit about how, how it did impact the research process, that would be interesting, I think. Also, did it impact any of the outcomes, do you think? Um, I, I, I can start and then Rachel can backfill, especially on the research part. Um, you know, for uh, as part of our project, we were going to visit our uh, five uh, private states uh, two times per, uh, per state. So it was gonna be 10 visits in total. Obviously, given the pandemic hitting in March, we were only able to visit three of our five target states, and we were only able to do three visits. Um, that being said, you know, the reality is, um, as part of this project, we interviewed over 500 individuals across the nation, um, especially in our five target states. So the reality is we did, um, I think, for the most part, we were able to cover the landscape as much as we could. Um, I think the one thing that we probably could have done more of, uh, which would actually require us to actually be physically on the campus, is to you know visit a community college, walk through, see how the see the setting of the institution, talk to its students, talk to its staff and administrators, all in one type of setting. Uh, we are fortunately we were able to do that in, in at Indian Hills Community College, um, but that is probably one area where we probably would have liked to have done more um, in this uh, current pandemic setting. Uh, but in terms of research, uh, Rachel, you want to just cover that? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, uh, like you said, David, this certainly the research aspect of all of this ended up looking a lot different than than we had anticipated, and we were only to, able to complete three of the ten trips. Um, you know, uh, at the outset, I thought it, we would get a lot more opportunities to try fried pickles in different states um, and, you know, work on our comparisons as we had been. And, and what the end result was, was a lot of hours on Zoom, uh, you know, as I'm sure most of the world can relate to now. Um, but like Jiheng said, you know, we were still able to speak to a, an absolutely incredible number of people. Um, and I think perhaps even more than we would have been able to in person, uh, just a little bit easier to get on schedules and be flexible. Um, in some ways, but we were really missing, you know, that critical component of actually visiting the communities that we were studying. Um, and I think that did in some ways change the focus of the research, you know, uh, in these conversations, what it means to be rural and concepts of rurality are certainly very contentious. Um, and that's something that, you know, we talk about a little bit in the report, I think we'd hoped to look into a little bit more uh, and examine, you know, place-based um, issues, what it means to be a rural campus, what it means to serve rural students. Uh, and that's a lot more difficult to do when you're not there. 
Um, you know, on the other hand, I think broadband was was definitely a topic that came up in in the research uh, before the pandemic hit. Um, and you know, after the pandemic, obviously those challenges were just exacerbated. And um, you know, I don't know if we would have had as much of a focus on that issue um, had it not been for the pandemic. Yeah, Rachel. You know, one of the things, as you mentioned, it was broadband. You know, when we did our first initial visits to like Iowa and to California, for example, transportation was brought up a number of times and traversing in a long distance that uh, our students needed to travel. Obviously, post pandemic, you know, when we got to the pandemic, everything was virtual. So um, the conversation, especially around transportation, kind of went out the window. But presumably, when institutions are back in person, we expect that to be a major uh, topic of conversation in a post-pandemic you know, world. Absolutely, I think that's a great point. Um, a lot of institutions and and the folks that we were interviewing did talk about transportation and um, you know a lot of creative solutions around that. That um, you know it, it really became less emphasis and a little bit difficult to talk about when you know the majority of people that can uh, are staying home. So one thing that really surprised me, and you you mentioned this briefly, that I just want to emphasize it for um, anyone listening, is it, it was really interesting to learn that the idea of what a rural college is, is so ambiguous or differently defined by different measures, and that that can actually inhibit the serving of these colleges. So I think we'll get to that um, when we talk about the recommendations, but I think anybody listening to this definitely needs to look at that in the report because it really demonstrates how something like a classification <laughs> can significantly affect um, how well your students are served. Um, and it, it apparently it's a really big challenge for rural colleges. Um, but the report identifies three, the top three challenges. You mentioned one of them, which is broadband internet access. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and then about the other two as well? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so like you said, I think one of the things that was really interesting uh, for me as well in engaging in this work is how much definitions can impact um, our institution's ability to serve students. Uh, and similarly, I think with broadband, um, there are challenges around the definition, what it means to have high-speed access that are really you know, foundational uh, in working on this issue. Um, but outside of that, I was also really surprised just at, uh, you know, uncovering what some of the real barriers are to this connectivity. You know, I don't think there's anyone at this point who disagrees that, um, that, that this is something we need to do. We need to connect our rural communities. Uh, you know, this type of access is no longer a luxury. It hasn't been for a long time, but the pandemic just really brought that into stark relief that this is something uh, that everyone needs to have um, and it goes beyond just education, right? There, there are implications for telehealth and uh, a number of other different access issues. Um, but what was really interesting and surprising to me was the, the number of roadblocks that exist at the state level um, and how uh, private service providers uh, have been engaging in lobbying at the state level to make it actually more difficult for these rural communities to be served. Um, there are also, I think, a number of roadblocks at the federal level. Uh, those look a little bit different. I think it's more about coordination. Um, and so, you know, we recognize that there are a number of wonderful programs uh, and opportunities to get funding through both USDA and FCC uh, and other federal orgs, but there's not a lot of communication between those groups uh, on what that looks like. Um, you know, we even heard about some 
grant opportunities that are mutually exclusive and that's not necessarily communicated to uh, the people that might be applying for them. So, you know, applying from one uh, for one precludes you from receiving another, um, but they cover different things. Uh, and so these are just some of the, the challenges that, um, you know, are preventing access from becoming a reality for our communities. Um, outside of broadband, uh, again, one of our other focuses was around student basic needs. Um, of course, that's you know much broader than just mental health, which is what the report primarily discusses. Um, but this is something that, again, I think our our focus shifted a little bit as a result of the pandemic. Um, you know, we we talked to a lot of colleges and communities that talked about food insecurity, housing insecurity, um, but all of that looked a little bit different uh, right after the pandemic. And I think, in many ways, mental health is. Uh, a much more challenging issue to overcome, um, which isn't to say that you know we can tackle food insecurity easily, um, but the the solutions are a little bit more straightforward. You know, how do you get food to students is a much clearer picture uh, to figure out than you know how do you serve this wide variety and you know different levels of need that students might have when it comes to to mental health support, um, and then funding, uh, you know, is is of course a, a huge issue and. Um, I think, you know, for rural communities, perhaps even more so than urban and suburban, uh, this really just led me to think again about kind of the focus that ACCT has around promoting um, funding based on per student uh, headcount rather than FTE. Um, our rural colleges, you know, are especially impacted by this when you're looking at really small student bodies. Um, counting by, by FTE uh, versus headcount makes a huge difference um, and small fluctuations in student population can have huge implications on funding. So I, when you were, um, just a slight little tangent here, when you're talking about the basic needs, I, I, I just think that's so interesting because for the length of time that I've been at ACCT, um, Jihang, you began a research initiative getting into these unmet basic needs, first of all, determining what they are and then how they need to be um, <clears throat> improved. And it's really interesting to see this kind of come to a head during the pandemic, how they were latent. And now they're becoming really obvious. Um, and, and I think we're able to see how they're actually affecting um, students' outcomes and their abilities to engage and even just stay enrolled. And that it just made me think that I saw a survey this week, I'm sure you saw it, Jihang, um, from one of our peer organizations, peer association, and they did a survey of college and university presidents throughout the country um, last fall and now about their top concerns. And those concerns involve um, enrollments, they concern short-term financial interests and long-term financial interests. Their top concern then and now is students' mental health. And their second one is faculty, staff, and the college community's mental health. So this is real. And I think when we initially touched on this topic, um, it seemed like so in some areas there was a little bit of hesitation because it wasn't openly addressed in a lot of places. So I just wanted to mention, I find that really interesting seeing how the earlier research is becoming um, obvious when it wasn't obvious years ago. Yeah. Um, so in addition to identifying the challenges though, and this is, this is really interesting to me, um, your research 
did identify some innovative ways that colleges have been adapting, like something called um, Tuesday Night Live and just interesting programs. Uh, so we talk about innovation and I think um, rural colleges or small under-resourced colleges have had to be really innovative. So could you talk about some of the, um, I don't know, one or two of, of the programs that come to mind? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and before I get into that, I just, you know, want to touch on something quickly. You'd mentioned, um, you know, the number one concern being students' mental health and, and following that, you know, the mental health of faculty and, and staff and others. And I think that was, um, you know, something that came up a lot in our conversations, too, especially in the interviews that we were able to conduct with tribal college presidents um, and really the, the college leadership as well facing this, especially, you know, in light of the pandemic um, and kind of, you know, they were they were very open and honest about, you know, confronting their own needs and how to um, kind of balance that against the community needs and feeling like, uh, you know, recognizing the importance of destigmatizing mental health challenges while still showing a strong face to their community and feeling the need to, um, you know, maybe not show everything that they were feeling all the time to, to try to inspire confidence in the community that things would be all right. Um, so I thought that was just really interesting and something you know, that I want to share for those listening, recognizing that a lot of our membership might be in a similar position. Um, but talking about uh, some of the innovations and programs that our institutions are working on, you know, you bring up Tuesday Night Live, which uh, it was really wonderful to, to cover that and hear about this program um, at Hazard Community and Technical College. Uh, you know, I think one of the, the reasons that I want to talk a little bit about that program specifically is that, um, you know, an important part of this work, I think, too, is kind of establishing and recognizing that uh, there is no rural America, you know, no monolithic rural America. Um, no two communities look the same, even within a state and especially across states. And, you know, we looked at states that look very different from each other. Kentucky to California um, to North Carolina are all very different pictures of rural America. And so, you know, when talking about these programs and highlighting these programs, um, you know, we wanted to showcase some, some case studies and some examples that we thought would be useful for a variety of different institutions to see and think about. Um, you know, at the same time, it's, it's hard to know what's easily replicable because, again, no, no two colleges look the same. Um, but I think Hazard uh, and their Tuesday Night Live program is a really great example um, because it focused on the community's needs. It focused on, you know, local leadership and, and kind of looking within the college at uh, what their surrounding area needed and what they were able to provide. Um, and they were able to, to do it for a really low cost as well, which is, I think, um, you know, something important. A few of the programs that we highlighted relied on substantial external funding. Um, and we know that that's not always possible for everyone. Um, so Hazard uh, Community and Technical College created the Tuesday Night Live program um, with hybrid courses. So allowing students primarily to do their coursework online, um, coming to campus once a week. Tuesday nights, of course, um, but also incorporating a lot of really uh, interesting and I think valuable um, community resources to that. So family dinners that um, students would help, uh, excuse me, um, children of students would help cook and prepare, um, eating the meal together, which I think just has so many wonderful things as a part of it, you know, bringing, bringing young children to campus, um, especially in a community where, you know, there's not a very high college going rate is, is so important. Um, you know, eating the meal all together pre excuse me, prior to COVID, they were doing family style. And so, you know, I think kind of the destigmatization there of food insecurity, it's not about eating on campus because you don't have food at home. This is a community event. 
Um, you know, and so that's why you're there. And then um, importantly, also offering student services after hours. So um, again, kind of that work-life balance, family, um, college balance, making sure that student parents or those working full or part-time have access to student support services that one day a week that they can be on campus. Yeah, I love the program, just reading about it, you know, just, just hearing a little bit about it because it just makes me think of how it breaks down those barriers for support services, but also for kids. So they have some idea where their parents are actually going when they disappear for that period of time. Right. You know, they understand that it's a valuable, important thing and not just a, an encumbrance, you know. I, I, can, I, can, I don't know, I just imagine so much value coming out of that sort of thing. Um, but there are a lot of other good examples in the paper, and I do want to point that out. Um, I guess we don't have time to talk through all of them, but um, I hope people read it. I mean, I just, I, I, you know, Rachel, you know, I've been telling you ever since I got a peek at this that I think this is one of the best things that we've released in quite a while, um, and I am genuinely excited about it. So if people hear that, it is real. <laughs> um, so finally, to wrap up the conversation in the paper, um, you make some recommendations about how disadvantages and disparities faced by rural community colleges can be improved in four different areas. Partnerships, student basic needs, broadband internet access, all of which you've talked about to some extent, and redefining rural support and tribal colleges and universities. Um, could you give us your top recommendation for each of these areas and say anything else that comes to mind about them? Sure, well, thank you so much, David, for your kind words about the report. I'm excited about it too, and I, I hope people read it. Um, I know it's a little lengthy, but uh, as much as I wanted to, to keep it short and sweet for readers, there's just, you know, like we said, we spoke to 500 people. It's been 18 months of, of research and, um, you know, there's only so much you can cut. I mean, I think we just spoke to so many incredible programs and uh, the cutting room floor is littered with 30 pages more. I, I could have kept going because the work that our rural colleges are doing is so incredible and there's so much great work to share. Um, and I, I do wanna mention that we will be sharing some more of that uh, on our website, um, rural.acct.org. So later this month, um, we'll be continuing to post additional information to support the report up there, um, as well as some interactive maps so that we can engage a little more with definitions of rurality um, and also sharing some more case studies and stories from our community. Um, with that said, um, as you mentioned, the, the recommendations in the paper are kind of split into four sections, the first being partnership. Um, this was something that, you know, really came up and, and I wanted to include to continue to make the focus about our colleges. Um, you know, while it would be great to have additional state and federal support, um, we know that our colleges are doing a great job already at supporting their students and coming up with these different programs. And so really just wanted to emphasize um, what we saw that colleges can already do kind of without that extra state and federal support. Um, and really just, you know, I would say just overall, this idea of partnership is so important. Um, you know, we spoke to some colleges, especially in rural areas, you know, uh, dealing with low population and things like that, that things can occasionally become competitive and, you know, different institutions trying to steal students from one another and things happening like that. Um, but really, especially in rural areas, you know, the ability to specialize and offer certain programs um, can, can really be beneficial when, you know, you're working in a partnership with neighborhood communities, neighboring communities to say like, hey, look, we have this great drone program. You know, maybe this year you guys don't build that out and instead you focus on something else. And, you know, we're happy to accommodate your students. Um, 
As far as student basic needs go, you know, I think there are a lot, again, that our colleges can do uh, kind of on the ground. And we read about, um, or I hope you all read about some, uh, you know, services, uh, particularly at our tribal colleges and universities, um, you know, finding ways to offer uh, supports affordably. Um, I think, you know, similarly looking in the section on mental health, um, just the importance of making the services that you have easily available online uh, can really make such a huge difference for students. Um, you know, timing with mental health crises is really critical. And so having that easy access to information um, can make a huge difference. Uh, but as far as state and federal support, um, you know, I think there's growing interest, like you said, the, the pandemic has, you know, while exacerbating these issues also really brought them to the forefront. Um, and so I think there's some momentum there um, with some different legislation that could really help, uh, you know, give our colleges the, the funding and the support that they need for students around basic needs. Um, we've talked about broadband a good amount already. Um, you know, I think uh, a few things would be really helpful expanding the federal E-rate program um, to make uh, community colleges, um, uh, uh, losing the word, um, making community colleges eligible, excuse me, for the federal E-rate program. Um, but also a lot of the work uh, around broadband accessibility has to happen at the state level. Um, you know, I think uh, uh, almost half of the states in the country right now have some form of legislation that prevents public options. Um, and so that's really going to be the greatest barrier that we see in, in making rural communities, um, you know, capable of getting the access that they need and that they deserve. And then as far as, uh, you know, redefining what rural support looks like, um, we have proposed a, a rural serving institution designation. Um, so this was actually an idea that came to us uh, via some of our institutions um, during uh, a meeting that we held while we were in California. Um, and the purpose of this would, you know, not only uh, be to make rural institutions eligible for additional dollars, but really change the focus to um, around the mission of the organization and miss the mission of these community colleges to serve rural students. Um, and along with this, I think the most important piece of this recommendation uh, is the Rural Serving Institution Eligibility Waiver. Um, and so again, no matter how you slice it, there are gonna be people that are unhappy with whatever definition you kind of settle on around what it means to be rural. And so I think it's really important that we allow institutions to uh, you know, submit some documentation if they don't qualify uh, under the definition that um, we've proposed of a rural serving institution, which is uh, reclassifying rural and town from iPads. Anyway, I won't get too far down the weeds. Um, but, but you know, regardless of, of what an institution looks like or which designation they do or do, you know, do or don't fall under, um, it's kind of one of those sticky things. You know it when you see it. Um, and so we want to make sure that there is funding that's available for rural institutions um, and exclusive funding available for rural institutions without making it too narrow. Um, you know, we want to recognize that we think there, there needs to be exclusive funding streams to support these institutions, but we also don't want to prevent institutions that serve a lot of rural students uh, from also getting support. I apologize, there's construction going on outside the joys of living and working and doing everything at home this year. <laughs> Um, and then the last thing, I have been a little long-winded, I think, but I just want to touch on our tribal colleges and universities. They've been a really important piece of this work as well and uh, face you know, similar challenges, uh, being geographically isolated and having a lot of other similar characteristics to our rural institutions, um, but obviously uh, you know, also face a number of unique challenges. Um, and one of those that uh, 
you know, prior to this project being somewhat ignorant to the needs of tribal colleges and universities, I was really shocked to, to learn about was the way that federal funding is structured for KCUs. Um, and uh, right now, funds are appropriated uh, not only per FTE, which is uh, similar for other institutions, um, and, you know, something that also we think disadvantages both tribal and, and community colleges, um, but tribal colleges also only receive funding for students that are enrolled in a federally recognized tribe. Um, and this is the problem because anywhere from 15 to 50% of students at some tribal colleges are actually not enrolled, uh, in, enrolled in a federally recognized tribe. And so a huge percentage of students uh, at uh, you know, any given tribal college um, are, you know, the institutions receiving no funding for that student. Um, and so that's something that, that we think really needs to change. But, um, you know, I don't claim to be any expert on tribal college issues, especially uh, even after this report, maybe not rural issues, there's a lot more to learn. Um, and so I would recommend, you know, for our listeners interested in learning more about tribal colleges and universities, we partnered very closely with AHEC. Um, and so they're a great resource to learn more about that. And AHEC is the American Indian Higher Education Consortium. And they've been a great partner with us. We, we've done um, at least, I think, a couple of podcast episodes dealing with different facets of tribal colleges. And I personally, I've also found it really um, illuminating because they their missions are a little bit different. They operate differently. And when you talk about enrolling in a tribe, it's not that's not an easy thing to do a lot of the time because the different, different tribal groups have different... Um, qualifications to enroll and so forth. And so it's very complicated as is everything <laughs> in this world. Um, I, I did, so you mentioned the website, which is rural.acct.org and you'll be putting more information up there. Um, just to clarify that this project is not ending now with this report, right? The report is the culmination of about 18 months of research, but what, like, what are the next steps in this project? Uh, it is our hope uh, that we will continue this work uh, with the support of uh, various organizations. Um, we are going to continue to build out our website, as Rachel mentioned. Uh, we'll be able to provide information on looking at our institutions by reality, uh, which we think is an important part of this conversation about rule-serving institutions, uh, number one. We'll, number two, we'll also be tracking some various legislation at the state level to see what is transpiring with some of our policy recommendations. That's something that we've um, said that we uh, to our funder that we would continue to do and support. Uh, and I think, candidly, we'll probably continue to have a broader conversation with an organization to highlight some of the activities and partnerships and innovative ideas that our institutions are, con are continuing to push. Um, I would also mention just that, you know, the, the, the legislative work of our association in the last uh, year or so, actually precisely a year, um, has been focused around providing some uh, resources to our institutions during this pandemic period. Uh, and obviously our association along with other higher education organizations have been successful in getting three different stimulus legislations passed in this count in the last 365 days. So we're hopeful that institutions are utilizing these resources uh, at the institutional level and also the student share to really think about how to uh, promote and um, get uh, some of our students back into the classroom. 
are we as a sector have uh, lost a significant amount of students in this past year uh, and we have to do a much more concerted effort to try to reach our students uh, and utilize these resources to encourage prod um, anything to get them back into our classrooms uh, so that they can become educated and live a uh, better life. Great. Well, thank you so much, um, Jiheng and Rachel. Uh, so people, if, if anybody's listening to this from a rural college and would like more information about your project, your contact information is on the website rural.acct.org. We'll also put it in the description um, of this podcast. And also, just finally, I think um, we didn't mention who supported this project, and I would want to acknowledge um, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, because really, we wouldn't have been able to do this otherwise. And um, as I've said, ad nauseum to you, at least, Rachel. <laughs> um, I think this is a really important project. So that support has been really helpful and we do appreciate it. For more information on the report and about rural institutions in general, please visit rural.acct.org. The report is not the end for our rural institution project. Information will continue to be added. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.